Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Todd Rundgren performs at Capitol Turnaround in Washington, D.C. this weekend, just days before being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I spoke with him about his biggest hits from I Saw the Light to Bang the Drum All Day, as well as his knack for pioneering music technology. Mr. Rundgren, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. My pleasure. You are a legend uh, coming to the Capitol turnaround here in D.C. on October 17th and 18th. Um, and that's just a couple weeks before you're officially inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So this is going to be a big month for you. Where, where are you um, in sort of uh, your, your post-COVID touring stuff? I mean, it, have you been out there for a while? Um, we are playing our fourth show tonight. Um, we started last Friday. Um, in Boston. Tonight we do our second show in Ridgefield, Connecticut, and then we're on from there. Um, and then of course we get to DC and the tour ends just before Thanksgiving in San Francisco. So it's a regular old tour. Gotcha, but not a regular old month, as we said. In between there, before Thanksgiving, on October 30th, you're going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, how excited were you to get that news? Uh, <laughs> I've never been in that much into the Hall of Fame. You know, it's uh, there are any number of reasons, but it means different things to different people, and it has never really uh, been high on my list of priorities, but my fans have always wanted it. And so when it finally happened, I was glad for them. And I was kind of glad for myself because I wouldn't have to go through it anymore. You know, this nominating stuff. So I'm, I'm just kind of relieved it's over with and that I won't have to hear about it again. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. Whenever I talk to some, you know, artists of your stature, they always they always say the same thing. They say I'm not big on accolades. Some of them despise the rock hall. Some of them just really don't care at all. But they just like you to a person, they all say I'm glad for my fans because every year they're always mounting the campaign. So that, that's funny to hear you say the same <laughs> the same exact thing. It's all about the music for you, I guess. You could care less about the accolades, right? <laughs> um, well, pretty much. You know, I've always felt that like a Hall of Fame was meant for when you uh retired or died because that's when they can sort of take the measure of what you've done but if you're still a working musician hall of fame doesn't make any sense you're not done who knows maybe your best work is yet to come so uh in that way it's like you know i don't think anyone who's still working as a musician wants to simply rest on their laurels and accept the um 
uh, some kind of thing that like puts a bracket on what they've done, you know, okay, we're giving you this award for your work between this year and this year, you know, instead of, um, like I say, I think if, if somebody retires, then you can take the measure of what they've done. But if they're still working, you know, it's kind of, it's just kind of weird. Right. It's like inducting Hank Aaron in the Hall of Fame before his career is over. He's still hitting homers, you know. Rest exactly. Rest you know, beat. you don't know how good he is yet. So right. it's like, so it's like uh, you got to wait until somebody's retired or dead. life achievement award while the life is still going on and the music still cranking out um well either way um you know who knows i'm gonna try to put a positive spin on it maybe maybe some young viewer will tune in on what is it hbo max or whatever streaming and then they'll maybe they'll discover your music that way you know some jay-z fan or foo fighters fan will tune in to see those guys and then then they'll discover todd runger maybe i don't know well they say that catalog sales is the is the benefit you get out of it you know, people will go back and start buying the old records. So that's uh, that's fine with me. I have a new record coming out, you know, in the in the sometime in the future. And I will be making records, more records after that. So what's that new uh, one called? When And do we know when it's coming out? Uh, I still don't have the actual release date. You know, I've delivered the record already, um, but we've taken a kind of old fashioned approach to promoting it. Uh, I've been releasing singles and I think on the 19th or something of October this month, um, we release our fourth single from the record. Um, so it's kind of like the old days when you release singles and then when you had enough of them, you put an album together. Um, I've already got the album together, but we are releasing singles until the actual album actually comes out. So me and the roots will have a single out, I think sometime in October. Oh, with the roots? With the roots, yeah. Wow. What was it like working with them? I mean, you don't necessarily think of the same genre, but I can totally hear it in my head. We're both from Philly, you know. <laughs> it's kind right. of a, it's a Philadelphia thing. Um, yeah, this uh, you know, the, it's another record of collaboration. So you know, the previous singles I put out, one was with a Montreal rapper named Narcy, and one was with. Uh, Rivers Cuomo from Weezer and one was with Sparks. Um, so this will be the fourth single on there's, you know, another another eight songs on the record. <laughs> very, very cool. Well, we'll have our listeners look out for that for sure. Um, great. Well, you mentioned mentioned that you're, you know, you're from Philadelphia. Take me back to those days. You know, you're born in what, in 48 in Philly. Uh, how, you know, what what sort of music was around in the household either your parents played or, you know, I want to know what what got you, you, you know, bit by the bug and say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pursue a career in this thing. Well, my parents didn't listen to anything that qualified as pop music past like the early 50s. I mean, once there was such a thing as rock and roll, none of that was really played inside my house. But my dad was still a music fan and he liked to listen to um contemporary classical music and show you know broadway musicals and that kind of thing so i got exposed to symphonic music and stage music at a fairly early age and of course as i was growing up um there was radio and while rock and roll so-called rock and roll was on the radio it was also mixed with a lot of kind of junk <laughs> Frankie <laughs> Avalon and that kind of thing you know so 
um, so the station that we preferred to listen to was, uh, well, the DJ, his name was Jerry Blavitt, and he played mostly R&B records. Uh, so I became much more interested in R&B than, than conventional pop music. And that found its way into my music in the same way that it's, you know, influenced Hollow Notes and, um, and a lot of other musicians from Philadelphia. So I think we were sort of fortunate, you know, we were on, you know, Washington is right there on the Mason Dixon line as well. You know, the border between what was traditionally thought of the North and South. And as you started to get South from, you know, the, you know, the, southern border of Pennsylvania, you'd hear less and less R&B music because it was considered, they were considered race records and they were only played on low, low powered black stations. So it became less and less familiar to, you know, to a white audience, but we were sort of fortunate, you know, that we were right on that borderline and, you know, had a real radio station with a real um, listener reach and it played mostly R&B. Wow. Thanks for taking me back into the, those, your roots, I guess, pun not intended, but um, cool. Well, tell me about um, sort of the transition between, I know you had that psychedelic band. Is it Nas or Naz? How did you, how do you pronounce it? The Naz, yeah. Naz. So in the, you know, you're in the late sixties and you're doing psychedelic stuff with fitting for the time with Naz. Um, but take me into, you know, sp doing that and then spinning off and say, you know, I'm going to go solo. Well, the Nas only lasted about 18 months from the time I formed the band till we, you know, just couldn't stand each other anymore. <laughs> it didn't take long, but we were all like under, we were all in our, you know, late teens and uh, not particularly mature. The oldest guy in the band was um, Carson and he was actually attending art school at the same time that we were trying to be successful as a band. And that was one of the things that happened. He decided to return to art school. So he was the first one to leave. And then shortly after that, I decided that I, that being in a band didn't work for me anymore. And for a while I was just on the streets in New York. Um, I was, you know, just sleeping with at friends' apartments and I was doing, installing lights in a discotheque. <laughs> you know, I was just doing anything to survive and then i got contacted by um the albert grossman organization um mostly because at the end of the life of the nas i started taking over the um production duties and i was doing some engineering as well and um the organ the albert grossman organization uh, as you may or may not know, originally built their roster around folk artists like Bob Dylan and Peter Paul and Mary and and a few blues artists and stuff like that. So they brought me into the organization to kind of modernize um, the records that their artists were making um, just because I had more of a more of an interest in, you know, like cutting edge technologies and where music was going and that sort of thing. So initially I was just an engineer and producer. And after a couple of projects, I asked, um, I asked management and the label if they would give me a budget to do a vanity project, you know, just record some of my own songs. And then I'd go back to work 
making records for other people and accidentally had a hit record off of my first album. And then that kind of sucked me into becoming a performer. And that accidental hit was We Gotta Get You a Woman, your first top 40 hit there. I believe it was like 1970. Um, and then tell me, I want—I definitely want to go into some of your, your better known songs because my listeners will kill me if we don't break down a couple of your famous hits. But real quick, tell me about Forming Utopia as well. That was like early 70s, right? Yeah, it was. Um, we had a, uh, a studio of our own. One of the ideas that I got after I had... Um, after I had done like my third album, which was something, anything, uh, I wanted to have more control over the process because I wanted to be a little more experimental in, the, in my music. So we built a studio of our own. And it was kind of, you know, our big playpen. We never paid studio bills anymore. And we formed sort of a little group of musicians who would play on each other's records. And that became the core of Utopia. You know, people who had played on uh, on something, anything, and the album following that, A Wizard, A True Star, that became the kind of the basis of Utopia. Um, and the reason why I formed Utopia was because I had been, um, more and more of my writing had become focused around the piano. I found it easier to write songs with the piano and uh, I had invested so much time in trying to become, uh, you know, a decent guitar player that I didn't want to lose um, any of those chops. So I essentially formed a band that was all about playing. And that was a big thing at the time. There were a lot of, you know, prog rock. Prog rock was big and there were prog rock bands like Yes, who would do epic long songs, you know, with lots of instrumental passages and there was Mahavishnu Orchestra, you know, where people were playing so blindingly fast, you could barely catch up. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to play a lot. So we formed Utopia and um, and our early gigs would last sometimes three and a half, four hours because everybody had to take a solo on every song. And uh, yeah, I became kind of, I had kind of like two careers at that point, my solo career that we would focus on, you know, my more, usually my more piano based material. And then Utopia, which would be in which I was the guitar player. Right, right. There's two kind of parallel careers happening at the same time. Well, yeah, let's go into some of your solo stuff. Um, you know, you mentioned something, anything, 1972, your, your big, your big breakthrough album, I guess it might've been like your third album, but that's when you really went, you know, I guess mainstream people would start recognizing some of this stuff. So, um, Tell me about the creation of I Saw the Light. Didn't you, not to be confused with the Hank Williams record, but um, I Saw the Light, didn't you crank, famously crank that out really fast, writing it? Yeah, it took me about 20 minutes. Wow. Um, well, it's not, if you break it down, it's not a particularly complicated song. It's, you know, as a matter of fact, it's only got the, the changes in the... Uh, uh, and the chorus are really almost incidental. You know, the chorus is hardly a chorus at all. Um, and the rhymes are really lame. <laughs> the lines are just a moon, June, spoon, you know, light, night, fight. I don't know. You know, it's just part of the reason why it was so easy to write was because it's kind of such a shallow 
idea to start with. Um, and it was one of the reasons, you know, why I started to um, take a different tack on, um, on my records after that. When I would um, write, I invested, I think, a little bit more originality into the process. Um, prior to that, I was trying to understand, you know, how songwriting worked. And I was listening to a lot of other songwriters and kind of copying the form um, that almost everybody did. And every song you wrote was about, you know, getting being in love or getting your heart broken or something. And uh, and eventually it started to seem like formulaic to me. So there was a big kind of schism between something, anything and a wizard true start in terms of how I approach songwriting. Great, great. Thanks for taking me into that evolution of you yeah, and, and the honesty to look at yourself and, and see how you, you grew even in that amount of time. Um, well, real just to double back to something, anything, the other big hit was Hello, It's Me, um, you know, one of those, uh, you know, classic breakup songs like you're talking about. But um, tell me and take me into the creation of that. That was like one of the more, more famous ballads of that time. Well, I, it was originally um, written for the Naz, and it was the very first song that I ever wrote. Um, the Naz was doing all cover songs, you know, before we ever got a record deal, and we realized we wouldn't get a record deal unless we had some original material. So I said, okay, I got to start writing, even though I had never thought much about it before. And I had a musical idea, and then I had a lyric idea, and I put them together and hello it's me was born and then it became the b-side of our first single open my eyes and open my eyes did not become the hit that we wanted it to be um radio essentially flipped the record over and started playing the b-side and so hello it's me was a minor hit for the nas the only thing the only radio exposure we ever got and years later, when I'm, you know, making a solo record, I thought maybe the song could use an update, you know, a little peppier tempo and a and a more of an R&B arrangement as opposed to the dirgy vibes central. You know, I was actually playing a vibraphone on the NAS version. <laughs> so uh just did it in an afternoon of you know three recordings we did two other recordings that afternoon and the significant difference between that song and the and and the other songs that were on side four was that uh when i started making something anything i hadn't actually planned to make a double album it's just that i got so into the songwriting formula that it quickly ballooned into a double album and three sides of it were just me playing everything. And I thought, let's do a fourth side that's all live in the studio, um, just as kind of a a, a, a different uh, a different experience in terms of making it, and a different kind of experience in terms of listening to it, and uh, also a sort of a return to like my earliest days, like when the Naz was doing auditions, trying to get a record label. And essentially you would go into the 
label studio and they'd give you a half an hour to record as many songs as you could. So everything was done live. You did, there was no time to do overdubs. You know, you would do a couple of takes of each song trying to get the best one. And then after half an hour, you got the boot. So uh, I had never done you know, I'd never done live performance in the studio, vocals and all before. And I thought, well, let's go really old school and see how it works. And essentially got lucky with Hello, It's Me. That's great. That's great. Um, all right. And then um, if I'm just moving a little chronologically, we don't have time for everything. But um, tell me about, um, I guess, what was it? 1978. Yeah, it was off of Herman and Mancalo. Um can we still be friends? Another famous song um, that I re- I actually this will this will date my age, but I re- I remember hearing it in Dumb and Dumber, which ah uh, yeah <laughs> you you'd compose the score for that whole movie too, right? So I guess take I guess well that's sort of a two parter. Take me into the original creation of that, and then how sort of it got new life, and you even got asked to do that movie. Well, that's actually my most covered song. It's the song that's been most covered by other artists. Uh, Rod Stewart did it. Robert Palmer did it. Uh, Colin Blundstone did it <laughs> from the zombies. Um, yeah, for some reason, that song, um, I'm plagued by ballads. I, there's no way that I could, seems like there's no way I can get a song on the radio that isn't a ballad of some kind. <laughs> so uh, I'm just happy, you know, that... Uh, people appreciate the um the songwriting and think that it's got a universal enough appeal that they can you know that they can uh, represent it and so in that sense it's just another song for me because it didn't become a a big hit for me it just became a familiar song because of all of the other artists who covered it Right, exactly. Well, it, it, you did it first, so there you go. You get the cred. Um, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, of course, the maybe time for one more, but we got to ask about bang the drum on bang on the drum all day. That one is something. I feel like if you say your name, Todd Rundgren, that's the first thing that anyone anywhere can they can pull it, or even if they don't know your name, they play that song. Say, oh, I know that one. Um, yeah, they know the song because they probably sang it at a sporting event somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was on what the like jock rock or jock jams or whatever, and then every stadium anthem just pumps that out. But take me into the creation of that because on the one hand, because it's a departure from some of your other stuff, it's a, it's kind of a goofy, funny like I'm just I'm just balls to the wall like. But if you really want to strip it down beneath the fun, it's sort of a universal theme, right? Of that whole like I don't want an office job, I want to be a musician kind of a thing. <laughs> Well, occasionally when I get into like an album project, particularly if I'm doing it all by myself and there's no other musicians uh, and I have to sort of imagine all the music myself, uh, my subconscious will start uh, writing music without any help from my conscious mind. And uh, I was in the middle of doing a a record. the record was, um, I think, the ever-popular Tortured Artist Effect, something of a protest record against my label at the time. <laughs> and um, and I essentially dreamed the song. I was asleep, and the song, you know, was playing fully realized in my head. Really? And, and I woke up and went down to the studio and, and quickly uh, recorded everything that I, 
I could remember of it and then kind of filled it out with um, with new lyrics and stuff. But the chorus was fully realized in my head. That whole look was you woke up was with a, the chorus in your head. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a gift from somewhere, literally, you know, in a sense that you don't know what this means now, but someday, you know, <laughs> you will know because the label never even released it as a single. It was never released as a single. I don't know how it found its way, first of all, into uh, state into uh, stadiums and things like that. I think first it was like hockey games. Um, and then it became a football anthem, particularly for like the Green Bay Packers. They still play it every time they score. Uh, a couple other teams, when the Rams were still in St. Louis, they used to play it every time they scored. And so, yeah, there's this vast audience that knows the song, but has no idea why they know it. <laughs> and then the payoff came when, you know, suddenly it's, you know, a party anthem for everyone. And all of these like film companies and, uh, and people who do commercials for things, when they want a party atmosphere, they use the song. So I would be getting, you know, like it was the Carnival Cruise Lines theme song for a while. You know, and I would get, you know, great big six and seven figure checks from them for the use of the song. Wow. Um, and I think most of the people who heard the song in the commercials had no idea who's doing the song. They just know the song and they associate it with a good time. So the song was a gift to me that eventually later would actually pay off in in real serious guilt. I love that it appeared to you in a dream and then it, it, it came from somewhere else and it, and it took on a life of something else that what an fascinating one. Uh, so exactly. That, that sparks and an interesting it, question for me then too, is have you ever been standing in a sports arena and hear that come on and do you just smile or do you kind of cover your face? <laughs> what do you do? Uh, well, I, I have to say that I haven't been in a lot of arenas. Um, my uh, oldest son was a professional baseball player for like 11 years. Um, and they must have played the song somewhere at, at some point, you know, in which case I give it a lame acknowledgement or whatever. But for the most part, you know, I have, I don't recall the last time I was in a, oh yes, I suddenly remembered. I have, I have heard it played because I conducted it <laughs> in Notre Dame. I did a residence in Notre Dame like five, six years ago or something like that. And one of the things I did, it was a homecoming game uh, at Notre Dame. And in the, I in the actual the stadium. In the actual stadium. And I conducted the marching band doing Bang the Drum. Wow. Wow. Instead of Rudy, it was Ron Grin. Ron Grin. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the year after that, I was essentially the, uh, the the homecoming king. I got to ride around in a, you know, in a convertible <laughs> before the homecoming game. Wow. Just taking over the mayor of South Bend for a day. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I never went to college. Um, but that hasn't stopped me from, you know, presuming that I can tell college kids, you know, what the world's about. Well, you can't go to college and bang on a drum all day, man. You can't go no time for class. But, yeah, uh, well, essentially, yeah. 
Cool, cool. Well, you've been more than generous with your time. So maybe just final question. Just in closing, um, you know, like we're talking about these big anthems like Bang on the Drum all day or, you know, we, we've mentioned some of your pop songs or your ballads that went on to become covered and hits and stuff like that. But you never, you know, you never really stuck to the the pop realm. And I actually thought that was kind of a, a credit to you. you. You know, you did sort of the prog rock stuff. You 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 really veered into pioneering a lot of what would you call it like electronic music and you know music videos and even computer software internet music delivery like why was sort of the computerized and, the, and and technological avenues why were you sort of drawn to that like i mean it's hard to ask a thomas edison why he invented a light bulb but why why were you so why why were you so fascinated by the new tech avenues well it started when i was very young um first of all my dad was an engineer um he worked at dupont and so, you know, technology was just kind of like part of our lives. He would bring home stuff from the lab, uh, experiments that they were doing or trying to duplicate from other, other experiments. And uh, so I was very comfortable with it. Um, I was also kind of a runty child and was getting picked on all the time. So when I saw War of the Worlds, no, uh, is that it? No, it's not War of the Worlds. It's uh, Forbidden Planet with uh, Robbie yeah. the Robot. And I decided that I wanted to build myself a robot pal <laughs> to protect me. <laughs> and I realized that a significant part of it was a robot brain, you know, and that that would involve, you know, what at the time was very rudimentary, um, some very rudimentary electronics. Uh, one of my favorite things uh, to do was, you know, we would occasionally have a family outing to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, which is essentially a big tech museum. And I would, you know, I would spend a lot of time playing tic-tac-toe against a very rudimentary computer that was made out of telephone relays. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was always fascinated with that. And, uh, and I learned about, you know, cybernetics and alternative number systems before I was even in high school. And so by the time I got to the end of high school, there were only two alternatives for me. I could go to tech school and learn uh, how to program computers, or I could become a musician. And we didn't have the money to send me to tech school. And also I hated living at home so i just left home on my 18th birthday and fortunately enough got into a band not too long after that so you know i don't know if you're aware of this but there is a you know people who appreciate math and logic also appreciate music because music is essentially essentially a mathematical exercise right and um I, you know, almost every computer programmer that I know is also a musician. Uh, it isn't necessarily the other way around, but you'd be surprised how, how much overlap there is uh, in terms of um, math and computer coding and music and, and how in some people's minds they're interchangeable. It's funny you mentioned that. What was it? A couple of weeks ago, we interviewed a musician, um, Stanley Jordan, and he said he, oh, of course. he recorded yeah. the startup music for some of the Apple Macintoshes. So, yeah, you're right. It's intertwined a lot of it. And I know. I remember seeing going to see Stanley uh, at one of his gigs 
And then he showed me his tour bus and he had a whole freaking computer set up in the back of his tour bus. And he was programming fourth, <laughs> which is a really obscure computer language that nobody uses anymore, but requires just a certain way of thinking. I love so, the image of Stanley, Stanley Jordan and Todd Rundgren in the back of a tour bus, not on with guitars, but going over computers and Robbie the Robot's probably there with you. <laughs> I'm talking about computer languages and stuff, yeah. Wow, that's priceless. Well, thank you so much for all of that. And that's a fascinating. We, I think we covered a lot of ground in a little time. So thanks so much, Todd Rundgren. Again, everybody at the Capitol Turnaround in Washington, D.C., October 17th and 18th. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you. And we'll see you in D.C. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.